0: Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, and today in the course on the norms of Catholic doctrine, the the third lecture, we're going to talk about Scripture, we're going to talk about the Word of God, and how revelation relates to the Word of God. When we talk about the Word of God, we're really talking about Christ, and in the last lecture we spoke about the the reality that God gradually revealed Himself, and then in Christ gave the fullness of revelation. And I want to just share a few words with you from scripture and from Catholic teaching that just illustrate this. First is Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So in the past, there were fragmentary ways. There were varied ways. Now there is fullness. That's the idea of, of this teaching here. Here's something from John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. The uniqueness of Christ, despite all the great revelations from from the time of Abraham through Moses, through all the prophets. Okay, let me read something else to you. De Verbum, Vatican II, uh, number two and especially number four. It speaks about the revelation in Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, as being a definitive revelation. And it says, we expect no new public revelation. And it shares a beautiful little statement by John of the Cross. And here's what John of the Cross said, the 16th century Spanish mystic. In him, in Christ, God has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. Okay. So, Christ is the Word of God, that is what He is called in John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the perfect communication, the mind of the Father became visible to us. And all Jesus' words, all that He did is the perfect revelation of God, particularly His death and His glorious resurrection. Okay? Now, this relates to something having to do with the fact that Scripture is commonly divided into two testaments. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew scriptures leading up to Christ and then the Christian scriptures that come after Christ's life, death, and resurrection. These two are, uni- are unified. How? Well, it's the same story that's being told from beginning to end, but it's the same object that e- every single line in Scripture is pointing to, and that is the Word of God, who is finally made flesh in Jesus Christ. So there's a single content. All of the Bible is about the Son, about the Word. That's what it's all about, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The Son is the living and the incarnate Word. Actually, some Latin authors in the Middle Ages called Him the abbreviated Word, the Verbum abbreviatum. Why? Because it all comes together in Him, in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's, I think, the important thing to know, you know, when you think about it, in the New Testament, the the word of God primarily refers to Christ. Secondarily, it refers to the to the verbal message about Christ, the verbal message of God, what He's saying to us. Only uh, if, in a third place is it referred. Do we talk about the Scriptures as the word of God? They are the word of God. But I just want you to keep in mind the order in the frequency in which we use the term word of God first for Jesus himself second for oral communication about God and then finally for written inspired communication about God okay so the word of God is Christ and the message about him the gospel the good news there's a word in Greek called kerygma or the announcement about God and that fundamental announcement is that all that God has done all that he has done from the beginning all that he has planned has been finally fulfilled in Jesus and in His death and resurrection. That's the basic preaching you find in Acts. If you read Acts closely and look at the speeches of Paul and of Peter, that's what you find out time and time again, okay? So, the Word of God is Jesus and the message about Him, about what He has done, okay? And it's handed, the the Word of God has therefore been handed on in two ways. The Word of God, the message about Christ, about who He is and what He's done, has been handed on orally and it was also handed on in written scriptures. The scriptures witness to and are the written expressions of the Word of God. The Word of God is fundamentally the message, the truth, and the scriptures are the inspired and and what we call canonical, we'll talk about that later, the inspired and canonical record and privileged vehicle of this Word of God, of this this great and, and marvelous message. And the reason it's important to understand this is scripture and tradition are not two entirely different things you can't separate them we're going to talk a little bit later at the end of the cl- of this class we're going to talk about the history of the formation of the scriptures and the canon because they illustrate the unity between scripture and tradition okay the the written word of god is is something that can't be divorced from that oral message let's talk a little bit about the source of revelation and the modes whereby revelation is transmitted to us. First of all, it's important to realize that there was a battle in Catholic theology, a battle just somewhat semantical, but but it actually is a very important issue. Are there different sources of Catholic theology in the sense that are, are there different sources of God's revelation, Did He give Himself and His information to us in different ways that we have to put together? And really, the Second Vatican Council, this was a debate that led up to a lot of uh, it actually had took place at the Second Vatican Council and it was going on before the council started. But it's clear there's only one source of revelation. There's some theologians after the Council of who spoke of two, but there's only one source and that source is Christ and the gospel, the, the message about Christ. The gospel is the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. One, it's one source. Okay, and that's De Verbum 7. The source of Revelation is the gospel promised by the prophets, fulfilled in the person of Christ, and proclaimed by Christ. Okay, But this gospel has come down to us in two distinctive modes of transmission. We receive this message about Christ through Scripture and through the ongoing passing on of the message orally and in life. That's called tradition. So Scripture and tradition aren't two separate sources, but rather they flow from the same divine wellspring, Jesus and the gospel. That's what, that's what the, the council wants to teach. So, Revelation isn't divvied out and parceled out between the two. You know, some truth is in scripture, and there's other truths that you only find in tradition. No, that's not really what the church teaches. The, the gospel of Christ comes to us through scripture and through tradition, two different modes of transmission. Now, the question is, does scripture contain everything that you, we need to know about God? And a fancy way to talk about that is, is Scripture materially sufficient? Does it have all the raw data, the material that we need to understand God and who He is and His plan for us? And for Catholics, for Protestants, it's probably a, a slam dunk, and Protestants would say, yes, absolutely. For Catholics, it's an open question. It's an open question whether or not that's the case, okay? Certainly, we believe that Scripture is not sufficient without interpretation, so it's not what we would call formally sufficient. And that's shown by the fact that so many people in the same Bible come up with different doctrines. But materially, it is a legitimate Catholic opinion to say yes and no. There's a lot of freedom in, in the Catholic faith for people to have different opinions on certain things. And part of what a Catholic theologian needs to know is what does the church clearly teach and what are areas where people can continue to theorize and, and be creative and, and propose different solutions. Okay? Let's talk about for a second, other religions because this is something that comes up all the time. How do we account for truth in other religions that aren't Christian religions? Okay, if you look at Islam, there's a lot of truth in Islam that we would agree with as Christians, as Catholics. And if you look at Mormonism, you'd find some truth there that we would agree with. You would find even some truth in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in certainly in Judaism, in many religions of the world, There's truth that we would agree with. And the question is, where does it come from? How do we explain the fact that it's there? There are different explanations, different possibilities. Number one, the truth in other religions outside of of Judeo-Christian revelation got there because the truth is natural truth, truth that human beings can arrive at through reason, that God exists, that we need to treat each other with justice, the Ten Commandments are all about justice to God and justice to other people. Okay, So it, natural knowledge, that's the reason why we find truth in other religions. That's one, ex, one very possible reality. I, I think that's certainly true. But is anything more than that true? Okay? Well, I think so. For example, there are many religions that borrow ideas from other religions. Early on, the early Christian apologists like St. Clement of Alexandria and a few others they claim that the Greek philosophers plagiarized from Moses. They didn't give them credit for it, but their ideas about God and about morality came from stealing uh, the ideas of Moses in the Jewish scriptures. And I think that's that may, it's probably debatable, it's possible. But what's a lot more probable is that in Islam, that the Islam ideas of Muhammad may not have all come from revelation. They, they may, they most probably it would seem, came from his contact with many Jews and Christians throughout the Near East as he worked as a caravan leader. And so you know that's one way to explain truth in Islam that, that we see in Christianity and Judaism, that it came through influence of those religions on a religious leader. But then there's a possibility that we have to at least raise. Is it possible that there's fragmentary revelation to people in other religious traditions, fragmentary revelation from God, supernatural knowledge, that God gives people that finds its way into other religions. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, there would seem to be some argument that this or some evidence that this is very much possible because you have a pagan prophet, Balaam, in Numbers 22, verse 5. And he's hired to curse the Israelites, but God uses him. God re- reveals to him the pros- that, that the Israelites are going to be blessed and favored by God. And Balaam sees a star. A star that's going to rise from Judah, which is interpreted clearly as Christ and has a lot to do with the star that the wise men saw, okay? So Balaam is a pagan prophet that God gives a revelation to. Now, it's very possible that God has given revelations to religious leaders throughout the world who are not in the Judeo-Christian tradition. But if you read the scriptures and read tradition, it can't, these other religions can't be put on a par with the revelation given to Israel because Psalm 147 says this, God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his ordinances. So the Judeo-Christian revelation is a unique story and it's public revelation for all mankind. If there's any revelation outside that historical tradition, then it's fragmentary revelation. It's nothing different or new beyond certainly what, what's been revealed in the Judeo-Christian story. And everything, all truth, is fulfilled and perfected in Christ. Christ fulfills any truth that's present anywhere in the world that comes either from natural knowledge or from fragmentary revelation, personal revelation, anything. So all of the Judeo-Christian special story that where God's hand was on Israel, revealing himself to them gradually, that's fulfilled in Christ. But anything out there that's valid in any religious traditions, any philosophies, Christ brings it to completion. He purifies it and brings it to completion. So there's no question of putting Christ on a par with any other religious leader in the world or putting Christian truth on a par with on an equal footing with any other religion in the world. For for Christians, yes, we can recognize truth out there, but the fullness of truth is is in Christ. And now let's talk about Scripture. Because Scripture, sacred scripture is the written transmission, the inspired, privileged, written transmission of divine revelation, that revelation that comes to us in Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about the name for the scriptures. That is the word that is used in the New Testament most. Gramata, scriptures, writings. That's all scripture, scriptures mean. It's in the plural. It means writings. You have to use the adjective sacred if you really want to distinguish writings that are divine from any other writings out there. And that's kind of understood. The word sacred isn't used oftentimes in the New Testament, but it's understood when we talk about when a writer talks about the scriptures, he's talking about the holy writings, the writings that where God's story is told. Okay, the word Bible comes from a Greek word biblia, not meaning book, but meaning books in the plural. It's important to understand at first, you know, all the the books of the Bible were individual scrolls. There wasn't the technology to have a bound book until the fourth century A.D. So the earliest Jewish scriptures are individual scrolls. And even today, if you go to a synagogue service, you see a scroll brought out and read from an individual scroll. But the early Christian writings were the same way. They were different writings, hence scriptures. They were different writings. Paul's letters, you know, were some put together here and, and a Gospel of Mark was in another scroll up until the 4th century when books could be put together and bound together, okay? So that's a little bit about the names of, uh, that, that Scripture and the Bible uh, have been called. Let's talk about the fact that from the very earliest days of the Christian era, there's been a sense and a belief that the Holy Spirit has inspired these writings and that these writings, therefore, have, uh, are especially privileged. I want to read a text from 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The doctrine of inspiration is briefly alluded to here. It's not developed at all. And I'm going to read something else from 2 Peter 2. First of all, you must understand this that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We actually find more about this idea of inspiration in writings after the New Testament, like the first writing after the New Testament books. Actually, it could be Contemporaneous with a few New Testament books like the book of uh, the, the Fourth Gospel and that is the first letter of Clement written about 95 AD there's a good deal of talk about inspiration in there and a lot of the quotes from Scripture are preceded by things like the Holy Spirit says you know the, the scriptures are, are so are, are believed to be inspired so he talks about the author as being the Holy Spirit now here's a very important thing to understand yes. Christians have always believed that the Spirit is the one who inspires the Scriptures, all the, the Scriptures that we now have bound in the Bible, all those different books. But what we don't want to think about and, and, and understand is that the Holy Spirit dictated words, actual words, to the different authors. We think about prophecy, and we think about prophets maybe going into a, a bit of a, a trance or something, and the Holy Spirit giving them word for word what they are to say. That's an idea that just a lot of us have. We've never really examined it. We've never even thought about it a whole lot, but it's just an assumption. And that may be true in certain circumstances with certain oracles and certain prophets, perhaps. But we shouldn't generalize that for the way the New Testament was written. Because actually there's lots of different kinds of of ways that God can move a person and, and inspire a person to communicate His truth. And if you read the different... Uh, all the different books of Scripture, you know, pro- the Proverbs is a lot different from the oracles of Isaiah. And Luke's gospel, you know, Luke seems to be sitting down and actually working with sources and kind of writing a history. You see that in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, through, in the prologue of Luke. So there's a lot of different ways that inspiration seems to work. Fundamentally, what we, we believe in inspiration, there's a lot of different theories, but fundamentally what we believe is the Holy Spirit is behind the teaching of these books, that the Holy Spirit has moved the author to express God's truth. And so, in a very real way, the Holy Spirit is an author or the originator of the teaching in these books, OK? Now, I want to say something about the, the, the idea of inspiration. The idea of inspiration, oftentimes, we focus in on the initial writing of a book, that the author is inspired. But I just want to point out that the Fathers of the Church and the Church's liturgy treats the words of Scripture today as if they are inspired. Not just the author was inspired 2,000 years ago to speak these words or write these words, but today the Holy Spirit breathes life into these words and breathes life to us through these words. So the, the Scriptures are seen in the Catholic tradition as a temple of the Holy Spirit. The words are almost like the body uh, like a body of christ you know and they're alive with the spirit that's very important because it's not just the, the scriptures being inspired doesn't it does not mean that they're just a source of information about god about the, the history of salvation or about you know the, the the abstract doctrines of who christ is you know they're not just a catechism lesson they're a living encounter with the holy spirit when we read scripture prayerfully, that's what's happening. So this, the scriptures are God-breathed. That's kind of what inspiration means, literally, is in-breathed by God. And the Spirit is understood, one of the words, the word Holy Spirit in Greek and in Latin mean wind, breath, and spirit. They all are the same meaning. So when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the scriptures being full of the Spirit. When the author wrote it, he was full of the Spirit, leading him to... to Communicate God's truth, but right now these words are full of the Spirit communicating to anyone God's truth his power his holiness Anyone who comes to them in faith Okay, so that's a little bit about about inspiration Let's talk about for a second more authorship is The Bible the work of men or the work of God people many times uh, go to a, a secular college or sometimes a Catholic college and find a course in which The scriptures seem like just any other human book. They're discussed as human literature, taught as human literature. Sometimes the instructor has no faith in them at all. uh, and doesn't teach anything dogmatic or anything spiritual about them. They're just literature. And that's shocking to many people. But the fact is, the the scripture's authors are truly authors. The human writers are authors in the modern sense. But in the, the ancient sense, God is the author. The word author in Latin, Author means originator. It means uh, the, the person who initiates this. It doesn't necessarily mean someone sitting down and writing. And a lot of times in the ancient world, uh, like in the case of Paul's letters, it's very customary for a, a very important person to dictate certain ideas, not just even word for word, but to dictate basic ideas and have someone else fill in the blanks and write, write, actual, write the ideas out in a letter form. Okay, we don't know exactly how Paul proceeded, but we do know he didn't write most of the letters himself because at the end of some of his letters he says, here I am writing in my own hand, Paul. So we know that he at least had a secretary. But it's very common in the ancient world not just to have a secretary, but to have someone who actually takes your ideas and puts them into a coherent letter. But you're still the author, the originator. It's your truth and the words and the expression and the style is your assistance. Okay, well that's really the way in which the authorship of of, of the Bible works. The, the writers, the human writers, are true authors in the modern sense. They're not stenographers. And you can see this when you look over the, the, the Bible, you see different genres, different ways of expression, different vocabularies. You can study the Bible as human words, as human literary works. Of course, that's only half of the story. They are the words of God in the words of men. That's a faith commitment that we, that we make as Christians. And, and the way to hold it all together, if you don't understand that these are words of men, then you're going to have a hard time interpreting them right. If you don't understand that they're words of God, then you'll have no spiritual life. You know, you, you fundamentally become secular in your approach to Scripture. So the Church is committed to balance it in the truth. Jesus is God and man. The Scriptures are human and divine. The Word of God in the words of men and women, in some cases. And so what we need to do is we need to understand the human context. That's the whole idea of the historical conditionedness of Scripture. We have to understand the unique human context, human style, different literary genres of Scripture. But we never lose sight of the fact that God is the Holy Spirit, is, is expressing truth about Christ that that is normative for us today through these people, these different people who are truly writers uh, and, and have they're not just, you know, dictograph machines. Now let's talk about inerrancy for a minute. This is one of the most controversial issues that that was debated on the floor of the Second Vatican Council. It's a controversial issue that rent the Protestant world back in the early 20th century between fundamentalists and modernists. The question of of the fact is Scripture without error. If God is behind Scripture, if He's the author of Scripture, how can it contain any error at all? Scientific error, uh, historical error, etc., etc. So fundamentalists holding out for God's truth, you know, would not admit any discrepancy whatsoever in the scriptures, any scientific or historical inaccuracy. On the other hand, you had people saying, no, these are human words, and, and they, you know, they're human limitations of authors. And so, you know, so there's tremendous debate in the, in the church. And I just wanna share with you what the Catholic Church teaches on this. First of all, the fact that scriptures are inerrant, that teach infallibly the truth of God, that tradition has been in the church from the beginning. It's been presupposed. It was first articulated and taught explicitly in a papal document in the 19th century. but it was assumed all the way up until that point. No one would argue with it. No one would debate it. OK? But what is it that, this, what is it that God is trying to teach? That is a critical question. What is God, the truth that God's trying to communicate? Now, here's what Leo XI said. And later on, uh, the Second Vatican Council said, what the Holy Spirit inspires the writers to assert is truth pertaining to salvation. What is Revelation about? It's about our, it's God and our relationship with him. Okay. So is God interested in teaching us historical and scientific detail? No. Does our relationship have anything to do with historical and scientific? Uh, historical detail of how many, kings, uh, how many years a king was ruling in Israel, or a scientific detail about whether rabbits have cloven feet or not, you know, various kinds of things. No, it has nothing to do with it. Let me just read you a couple of footnotes in De Verbum. St. Augustine back in the fourth century said this, Though the sacred writers may have known astronomy, nevertheless the Holy Spirit did not intend to utter through them any truth apart from that which is profitable to salvation. Augustine adds that this may concern either teachings to be believed, doctrine, or morals to be practiced. The same note also cites Aquinas. This is in De Verbum. Any knowledge which is profitable to salvation may be the object of prophetic inspiration, but things which cannot affect our salvation do not belong to inspiration. So all of the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, are inspired, but they're inspired insofar as they convey to us truth about salvation. So God did not take these writers out of their context and give them supernatural information about science or about historical fact that did not pertain to salvation. So we trust the Bible completely in all that it teaches about salvation, okay? But we don't look for science lessons and we don't look for secular history lessons in the Bible, although the Bible contains much valuable history.